Hello, and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about queer historical media. I'm Jason. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And today we're talking about the 1926 play, The Captive, written by Edouard Bourdais and adapted for Broadway by Arthur Hornblow Jr. Okay, I finished reading this play five minutes ago, so I'm very ready. (laughs) Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast and pay respects to their elders past and present. We recognise them as the custodians of an oral history tradition far older than this podcast. We also have some content warnings. This episode includes significant amounts of period-typical homophobia, I would say more so than most of our episodes, including the medicalization of homosexuality. If that doesn't sound like something you would like to listen to, please feel free to check out one of our other episodes. So to give you both an idea of how this episode is going to go, and the audience I suppose... uh, (laughs) The key people here... I'm going to give a very brief summary of the play itself, but largely we're going to discuss the play's origins, production, and reception before going on to the meat of the content to contextualize the discussion we then have on the play itself. Please save your comments about uh, the characters and the (laughs) themes to the appropriate moment. Okay. Okay. I'm also going to make a note here that, uh, as always, I apologize for my pronunciation of French. I I feel like I torture myself a bit by continuing (laughs) to choose things that include French names. (laughs) Is Uh, there just, like, more queer French literature? There's definitely a lot of- I feel like a lot of it is, like, prominent historically. Like, you know, it's it's not that French people are more queer, it's that there's more queer French content that's become- prominent yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, too, I was not trying to claim that the french are the gayest country to be <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're not like a primary schooler <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yes i have tried to look up how these names are pronounced most notably one of the names is irene or irene uh which for very obvious reasons we're going I'm, to do wrong <laughs> yeah we're going to do wrong so that said Uh, The captive centres on a young woman in Paris, Irene, who is torn between her attraction to an older married woman, Madame de Guine, and the relationship her father wishes for her, a marriage to the straight-laced businessman Jacques Viroux. After making a determined effort to ignore her lesbianism, marrying Jacques and spending a year apart from Madame de Guine, the marriage breaks down and Irene leaves to return to de Guine, who is never seen on stage, represented only by nosegays of violets, the symbol of her love. So I'll let you both tear into the content later. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty grim. It is pretty grim. Uh, but for now, let's talk about the history of the production, which at least at the start is quite fun. Is it going to become pretty grim? <laughs> you shall see. <laughs> Now, there's a bit of contradictory information about the play's timeline on Broadway, so I want to start by laying out the history as far as I was able to determine it to give you context as to how the story was received. What is not contradicted anywhere I can find, that's not to say it's necessarily 100% true, uh, is that the play opened on Broadway on September 29th, 1926 and ran for 160 performances after an initial successful run in Paris earlier that same year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is the Broadway adaptation, do you know, significantly different from the French, or is it basically just a direct translation? Uh, I don't have a lot of information about, like, whether, yeah, whether there were many changes. Okay. Um, the version that we have read is a translation. As someone who doesn't speak French, I wasn't able to track down some of the stuff about the original French. Either the author, who I have some information but not a huge amount of information about, Mm -hmm. uh, or the original French text. Fair enough. I assume it's not that different based on the fact that the Broadway one is still set in Paris. Oh yeah, Yeah. and and the fact that it came out in the same year. Yeah, yeah. So like, this was a very literal, just like, cool, we're just translating into English and performing it on Broadway. Yeah. Within like six months. That's so fast. So yeah, there can't be a lot of change that has been made. So yeah, as I said earlier, the original was written by Edouard Bourdais, and it was adapted for Broadway by Arthur Hornblow Jr. It starred Basil Rathbone, (laughs) uh, he who would later go on to play Sherlock. So Basil Rathbone as Jacques? Yes. That's very funny to me, because like my only image of Basil Rathbone is based on him playing Sherlock Holmes, where he's so like, I'm trying to think how to say it, like he's such a gaunt, unusual looking man. He's not like, oh yeah, that's just like the straight laced guy who's there to fulfill the role of being the regular guy in the play. Yeah, I, I actually read a lot about Basil Rathbone just because uh, <laughs> there was a website <laughs> about Basil Rathbone that included a really good a lot of the information in this timeline that I'm about to give you comes from this website because it went through like day by day with references like what happened to this play 
Nice. Um, and so I read a lot about Basil Rathbone's career as a result and was like, oh, wow, yeah, he definitely had several different phases to his career. We're not really going to get too much into him as a person, but we are going to get into his reactions and thoughts about this play. Oh, okay. Hmm. Because we have a lot of this from his autobiography in and out of character. I um, mean... I guess we'll just have to accept that Basil Rathbone is a good actor who can do both straight-laced heterosexual man and Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The two types of man. (laughs) Yeah. Indeed. So, yeah, Rathbone says, The play was produced without any pre-production publicity, with Helen Menken as Irene and myself as Jacques. Of course, there were rumours as to what it was all about, since a limited number of Americans had seen the play in Paris, but our first night audience was completely ignorant of its theme. They were stunned by its power and the persuasiveness of its argument. We were an immediate success, and for 17 weeks we played to standing room only at every performance. At no time was it ever suggested that we were salacious or sordid or seeking sensation. So what does Basil Rathbone think that the play's argument is? Uh, we will get to that okay. very soon. <laughs> Um, it's quite frank about the way it talks about sexuality, but yeah, it's not salacious, I wouldn't say. It's not, like, titillating about lesbianism. Absolutely no. not, no. Yeah. And, like, they allude to sex very occasionally, mm. but that's it. There's no sexual content in it. Yeah. It's clear they're talking about sex, but they're not talking graphically or anything. Yeah. yeah. And it's only, like, the only time they talk about sex is when Jacques is talking to Irene about their relationship mm, yeah. and he's like talking about how she was not into the sex. Yeah, they don't even really talk about the lesbian sex, do no, they? No, they never talk about the lesbian sex. They oh. talk about the lesbian relationships, but they just say intimacy and they don't say anything further about what kind of intimacy. Yeah, yeah it is largely um, a play about relationships. Yeah. And there are lots of different relationships yeah. in the play, as we'll get into, but yeah, it is largely a play about relationships rather than sex. And yeah, we will see a lot of the reviews at the time noted that. Like, they yeah. didn't think it was salacious. Mm. So on October 6th, Variety published a review that includes a couple of lines that give a sense of the mainstream views on the story. The Captive is a homosexual story, and in this instance, the abnormal sex attraction of one woman for another. Ladies of this character are commonly referred to as lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's just a fact, but it was just such a funny way to say it. You have to tell them sometime, I guess. That's true. Greenwich Village is full of them. <laughs> As soon as you laughed after the first line, I was like, well, you're not making it through the second line. (laughs) (laughs) But it is not a matter for household discussion or even mention. There are millions of women, sedate in nature, who never heard of a lesbian, much less believing that such people exist, and many men, too. The adaptation is such an excellent work that the unfolding of the play is not repellent. In fact, one feels sorry for the captive. I do feel sorry for Irene. Like, they're not wrong. I was thinking as I was reading this play, which is quite frank about lesbianism, that, like, so often when we've read about people... What year was this? 26. 26, yeah. When we've read about people who are alive at this time in kind of the first half of the 20th century in America, like, specifically queer women, so often part of their story is being like, I never knew this existed. I never knew there was anyone else like me. I'd never heard the word lesbian. Mm. But, like, at the same time, you've got plays like this and articles in Variety being like, so this is what a lesbian is guys i just think it's interesting to see that point where they're kind of discussing lesbianism but maybe not only if you're in certain circles yeah well and i guess you know i mean as this article is saying there are millions of women who have not heard of it which obviously you know to some extent is them just ignoring the point of view of women but is also probably true to a large extent Yeah. yeah yeah even now like there are constantly women who were having same-sex attraction as teenagers and being like i thought i was the only person who had felt this yeah, yeah, there are millions of women like, today. You who... read those articles all the time when lesbians are talking about their childhoods who are like in their 30s or 20s now. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, the review is overall very positive in terms of how it speaks about the play. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of homophobia going on there. But it ends with allusions to the troubles the show could face. Maybe the captive will never go on the road very far, but it's set for Broadway with the proviso that if it's not interfered with, and a question, what is the stage coming or going to? There isn't much left to show or talk of in a public performance after this. <laughs> <laughs> it's the end of theatre. This is it. They've mentioned lesbians. Broadway's shutting down. <laughs> uh, and it finishes, and the censors. What a play to promote censorship. And what a play. <laughs> <laughs> what a play. What a play to promote censorship. That's such a wild... <laughs> 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point to hammer home. While I've seen some say that the play was poorly received, I would say based on the reviews I saw that it was lesbianism that was poorly received, at least by the, you know, mainstream press, Mm -hmm. and that the play itself was considered to treat homosexuality and women as akin to hysteria, and that, you know, they thought it was a good depiction of that. Yeah, so they're obviously quite homophobic, but that doesn't mean that they're looking at a play about lesbianism and being like, this play shouldn't exist. They're like, yeah, this is an issue yeah. that we should talk about in theatre. I, I'm i sorry, I still can't get over the fact that like theatre is over now. Like We've mentioned lesbianism on stage. <laughs> What's left? <yeah>. Go home. <laughs> As we'll get into, it wasn't just this play that was causing those kind of comments okay. to be made. There was a wider context. Okay. <laughs> I mean... I think it is always the case, at least for me personally, that the like immediate post-war era in the US was so conservative that I'm always caught off guard mm. by what's going down pre-war. Yeah, yeah, definitely true. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like you assume that it's a linear progression throughout the 20th century of becoming increasingly accepting, but that's just not what was happening. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's just like I have a sense of what America was like in the 1950s and when something happens in 1926, like a play on Broadway about lesbians, openly about lesbians i'm mm. like i mean i guess that could happen <laughs> i mean i mean we talked about this a lot in the wonder woman episode yeah right? that initial yeah. run of wonder woman comics and then it's like snap huge censorship you know yeah I mean, it's not like censorship didn't exist in the 20s, as we will go on to discuss. So yeah, as another example of uh, this kind of response, Jay Brooks Atkinson, who wrote the intro to the version of the play that we read, wrote a more extensive review that was published in the New York Times at the time, where he repeatedly refers to lesbianism as a loathsome possibility, a warped infatuation, and a revolting theme, but repeats his admiration for the play itself, saying that it avoids the impulse to degenerate into commercial exploitation. And this extends to Basil Rathbone, who says in his autobiography, we were helping to educate the public to a better understanding of a social sickness that could not be ignored. Such matters have always been the prerogative of the theatre when approached seriously and in good taste. Yeah, it's very much they think that they're producing, like, a tasteful play bringing the public's awareness to a mental health issue. Yeah. That said, I think it's important to note here that these are the views of men. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> while some estimates put the percentage of the audience who were women at over 80. I see. So these reviews are not representative of probably the experience of people seeing the play. Yeah, I just think because obviously mm. later on we're going to talk about interpretations of the play and how we feel the play portrays lesbianism Mm -hmm. and what points it's trying to make. And I have some arguments sort of going both ways on that. I have some thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think, you know, whilst obviously I'm giving these reviews that are saying, well, obviously, you know, this is one clear interpretation that was being made at the time, but we don't necessarily have the views of the vast swathes of Mm. women who were going to see this play. And, you know, clearly it was resonating with female audiences. Mm, Yeah. I think they would probably have something different to say about how they interpret the main character and the play's views on the main character. Yeah, yeah. And, Um, like, even if these women are not lesbians or are not attracted to women, I feel like it would probably resonate with a lot of women regardless because it's so obviously a story about, like, especially at the start when Irene is fighting with her dad about how she wants to live her life, just a story about a woman wanting independence and being forced into, you know, a specific expected path in life, basically. Yes, correct. And again, we will go into that later. (laughs) (laughs) So, in November, Variety would report that a citizen's play jury was convened to vote on whether the play should be closed. Um, And the New York Times reported the results. Six against five in favour and one abstention. With a supermajority of nine needed to force closure, the play was allowed to continue showings. The New York Times noted that three women were on the jury. Obviously, we have no record of how they voted individually, but Mm -hmm. the New York Times thought it was important to note that because obviously they were kind of making judgments about those women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Um, who, do you know exactly how and why it was decided to convene this jury and have this vote? uh, Yes. Okay. So, play juries existed from 1922 to 1927 and were an attempt at self-regulation by Broadway that would ultimately, in this case and in general, prove insufficiently conservative for the tastes of the pro-censorship American mainstream. Mm-hmm. Okay, so essentially they're like an effort from the theatre industry to be like, look, we can censor ourselves, please stay out of our business. Yeah. But they never censor themselves because why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think they probably did. It's just that, you know, like, these are people who have taste and understanding of how theatre works and yeah. you know, are, like, um, 
are comfortable with depicting things that they're not necessarily morally in favor of. Yeah. 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 Like, mm. you, you know, you can see that, like, these reviewers and critics and the actors and stuff were very much like, yeah, like, obviously lesbianism is bad, but, like, that doesn't mean this play shouldn't exist. Yeah, like, theatre shows a lot of things that theatre doesn't condone. That's yeah. how fiction works. Yeah, and so, you know, that kind of media literacy was clearly not sufficient in the face of conservative backlash, you know, as we kind of see with most conservative backlash throughout history. is like, you can't just, like, appease them. They will just keep pushing you further. Yeah. yeah. This is maybe the one thing that people may have heard about with regards to this play. Uh, Variety would later report on January 12th, 1927, that sales of violets were plummeting in response to their association in the play with homosexuality. I'm very upset because I had read of this fact before and I misremembered this fact as the play. I hadn't read the play at this stage, but I misremembered it as the play using violets as a symbol for lesbianism and the sale of violets increasing, which was a much more positive queer story. But no, it's about homophobia. (laughs) (laughs) So what was interesting to me is obviously like references to lavender or violet or purple as being the colour of queerness uh, date back to Sappho and more recently Oscar Wilde. But in an American context, uh, there was a biography of Abraham Lincoln by Carl Sandburg. I'm so intrigued wherever (laughs) this is going. I'm so intrigued. The first two volumes of which were published in 1926, referring to an early friendship of Lincoln's as containing a streak of lavender and spots soft as May violets. What does that mean in that context? That Abe is gay. It means it's a bit gay. I mean... That is is the implication of that statement. Okay. And that... So while the captive may have not been solely responsible for the plummeting violet sales, it was certainly having a significant like cultural influence mm-hmm. in that moment. So the mainstream was realising about the queer symbolism of purple flowers in this time for a variety of reasons, the captive yeah. being a major reason. Yeah, so yeah, I, I assume therefore that like the use of violets in the play was not like an accident like that was a very specifically chosen symbol yeah and you know it it just kind of then like like resonated more so Mm -hmm. Um, it is i mean you know it's pretty sad but it's also pretty funny to think of like somebody going to the florist in 1926 and be like oh what flowers will i get oh i can't buy her violets then then she'll think it's gay oh no better get a rose like that's so absurd the thing is there like i feel like the people who are having to like pull back on buying violets must be people buying flowers for their friends yeah girls buying flowers for their female friends who yeah. don't want anyone to get the wrong idea <laughs> yeah like that must be where the where the market in violets disappeared because yeah. it's not that much a worry if you buy violets for your wife and you're a man she's not going to mistake you for a homosexual yeah <laughs> i guess like who knows maybe yeah. you be like, i don't know these are some sissy flowers <laughs> i i don't know like what the context was necessarily for like buying flowers for someone in that moment like what were the normal situations yeah. where that occurred so mm. like mm, i'd have to go and do an in-depth yeah. study into the history of giving flowers to people which i'm not going to do <laughs> i don't know um, i don't know <laughs> like yeah. giving flowers between female friends is definitely a thing with a long history Mm, yeah sure so i don't know beyond that so at the same time as this was all going on stage and soon-to-be film actress may west was starring in her self-written produced and directed play sex (laughs) (laughs) love that for you may The production was causing significant controversy due to its supposed obscenity. (laughs) Its supposed obscenity. (laughs) She literally called it sex. While another story of temptation, The Virgin Man, had begun playing in January. (laughs) So it was a salacious time for theatre. So truly the captive was fairly restrained. (laughs) Yeah. It's just that it's queer. Well, moreover, West was taking auditions for her own play dealing with homosexuality, The Drag, with a cast comprised entirely of Greenwich Village gays. Uh, The Drag was to be a male version of The Captive, as described by West's publicity. Did this ever get made? It was mostly written, but it was not put on, as you will uh, soon see (laughs) what is about to happen to Broadway. Okay. So it is in that context that the the captive was closed and the cast arrested by New York City's district attorney. Some sources claim this occurred on February 27th, and Rathbone himself recalls not being able to return to the theatre after his arrest on February 9th, uh, but based on the variety articles on the subject published at the time, it seems clear the timeline was as follows. Okay. Wednesday, February 9th, uh, the cast are arrested following a performance. The story I saw most often about how this occurred was that the officers informed them before the performance began that they would be arrested upon its completion. Says Rathbone, As we walked out onto the stage to await our first entrances, we were stopped by a plainclothes policeman who showed his badge and said, Please don't let it disturb your performance tonight, (laughs) but consider yourself under arrest. That 
so like why why did you tell them beforehand i mean the whole thing is wild (laughs) because like this play has been going on openly legally in public in a public theater for like however many weeks and today nothing has changed but they're like we're arresting you about that. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that is how laws work. Yeah. Like, 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 laws change all the time. Yeah. And that is how they work. And but yeah, did I, a law change? Well, or at least the interpretation mm, of the yeah. law changes, right? Mm. And the, the enforcement of the law changes, yeah. you know? So, so yeah, that was on Wednesday. Uh, then on Friday, February 11th, Variety reported the following week that on Friday night's performance... Uh, Rathbone lost his place in the dialogue and was unable to be assisted because the prompt script had been commandeered by the police. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough that he lost his place because he was probably distracted by the fact that he was about to get arrested. The well, energy... no, 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 no. So at this point he's been arrested, he's been released, oh. and they're now doing another performance. Oh, But okay. the script has been commandeered. The energy of this show in this week must have been so weird. Yeah. Yeah, because oh. I assume that, like, if it got out that this was happening, which I assume it did, like, audiences would be suddenly... Some keen. very keen, and some like, oh, I don't want to be involved with this, it's too scandalous now. Yeah, they eventually just restarted the act, oh, yeah. like, from the top. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and so, yeah, then the following Tuesday, February 15th, uh, the decision was made to close the play in order to avoid further arrests, fines, or legal charges. Then, on March 8th, New York Supreme Court Justice Jeremiah A. Marnie upheld the literary quality of the captive, but maintained that it was immoral thereby justifying the decision to close the play. So can we just go back to February 9th for a second? Uh Uh-huh. They arrested them all, but then they let them go and let them keep performing the play? This is where, yeah, it's a little bit contradictory. Yeah, that's confusing. Um, I don't really understand. Because, yeah, as I said, Rathbone claims that he was not allowed to return to the theatre after his arrest on February 9th. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly but, the play kept happening and he forgot his lines after that, so he must have been there. Yeah. yeah. So whether or not the arrest happened not on February 9th, but on um, February 11th or something like that, I yeah, yeah. it's a little muddled. Okay. But like very clearly the play was performed on Friday, February 11th, because Variety talked about it as last Friday on Tuesday, February 15th. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what can I tell you? It's a bit hazy. <laughs> it's a bit hazy. Okay. Okay. That state Supreme Court decision uh, came after Horace B. Livewright bought the rights to the play and appealed to the New York Supreme Court to grant an injunction to prevent the district attorney from interfering with his efforts to produce it. Justice Marnie refused to grant that injunction, and so therefore the play was done. Said the New York Times, Justice Marnie gave the opinion that the drama had excellent literary quality and that it might not harm a mature and intelligent audience. On the other hand, he held that it might have dangerous effects on some persons in an indiscriminate cosmopolitan audience. On that ground, he held that the police and the district attorney had acted correctly in seeking to stop the captive and to prevent its revival. So some people might not be smart and or well-educated enough to understand that it's condemning lesbianism and just be like, huh, nice, and it will turn them gay. Yeah. That's the term. Again, that gets me back to, you know, the audience was, from all accounts, predominantly women. Mm. And I do think, you know, there's some implications here in when you connect the dots. Yeah. women were perceiving this play very differently to how men were. Yeah. 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 (laughs) So the conclusion of all of this was the Wales Padlock Act, sponsored by State Senator B. Roger Wales, which allowed for the arrest and prosecution of any actors or producers involved in an immoral drama. If the producers of a play were convicted, the theatre could be padlocked for a year. Ah, I've heard of the Wales Padlock Act, but I never really knew about the details. I didn't realise they were literally just locking up the theatres. Yeah, so that's why I was like, why is it called Wales? And why is it called Padlock? Wales <laughs> is the name, Wales, Padlock and is the here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So this was the end of Broadway's attempts at self-regulation, with the Committee of Nine, organised by producers, actors and dramatists in 1926, to clean up the stage from within and avert state censorship, disbanding in April. Rathbone would write about the act in his autobiography, A Hideous Betrayal, this most infamous example of the imposition of political censorship on a democratic society ever known in the history of responsible creative theatre, this cold-blooded, unscrupulous sabotage of an important contemporary work of art. I mean, he's not wrong. Yeah, Censorship like, is bad. Like, that's a very extreme way of describing it. It's kind of the worst thing that has ever happened. But, yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to me because, yeah, I think um, I've seen some people sort of interpret his opposition to the Wales Padlock Act as therefore him being supportive of homosexuality. Mm. But, like, obviously we've seen from some of the earlier quotes that wasn't necessarily the case. And yeah. I do think there's a bit of contradictory information generally about Basil Rathbone and his views yeah. on homosexuality. And 
I think I saw a reference at some point to maybe this autobiography wasn't entirely an autobiography. Um, okay. So, th- like, this is not an episode about Basil Rathbone. <laughs> I'm not going to go too deep into that. But, like, this is a point of view ostensibly expressed by him. Okay. So Yeah. Take that with a grain yeah. of salt. It's also, like, it's not necessarily contradictory, and I can't speak for Basil's personal opinion on this, but in that period, and you very much see it in the play, that's kind of the position in the play, is this, like homosexuality is grotesque and terrible, but some people are just like that. Oops. We have sympathy for gay people (laughs) because they're suffering from this unfortunate and terrible illness, essentially. So it's not like I hate the gays and I want them all to die or burn in hell or whatever. It's just like, you know, I feel bad for them. Uh, Yeah, it's like, I'm so sorry, you just can't stop lusting after a woman, Irene. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I like that you got that in there. (laughs) Bit of self-reflection from Irene. I <laughs> comment. Um, I'm not sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so the Wales Padlock Act would remain on the books until 1967, uh, and its influence was felt in the creation of later homosexual content with the Children's Hour playwright Lillian Hellman saying in a 1989 interview about the play, which was published in 1934, that was a lot of years, play in 1934, law <laughs> remained on the books till 67. The interviews from 89. Here's the quote. Um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) uh, The play has nothing to do with lesbianism, of course. It's just one of the side issues. It's just the charge of the girl. But Mr. Shumlin, the producer, was very worried. Everybody was very worried because a play called The Captive, a French play, had played in New York a few years before and had been closed up by the police department. So we took every precaution. So everyone was now just really, really scared to put any reference to homosexuality in their theatre. Yeah. Yeah, and you know this is a case where it was approved, and it you know I I've looked into the children's hour before as a potential episode mm-hmm. to do, and yeah, it's very like like it's much subtler than this is. Yeah, yeah. The play was also still being blamed for the downturn in the violet market in 1934, with an article from <laughs> Harper's Bazaar stating that the violent industry was still cursing this play. <laughs> I can't believe that eight years after the violet industry hadn't just turned around and started planting some different plants. <laughs> yeah, or just trying some advertising of, you know, violets represent, I don't know, something that everyone felt positively about. I, I think it was not just like the sale of violets went down, it was that that like hurt the whole flower market. Like yeah. I, I, I think it is the thing where because it's a like crop-based market, like losing an entire year of sales yeah. is something that doesn't just hurt you for that year, it hurts you for years moving onwards. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And obviously, you know, it's also, it was the late 20s and then the De- Great Depression happened. Yeah. So, you know. I, I <laughs> the captive probably... did not cause the Great Depression, yeah, to be clear. <laughs> the captive did not cause the Great Depression, but presumably the fact that there was a downturn in the violet market a year before the Great Depression started made things even worse. Yeah, yeah. So that's basically that for the history of the play. Okay. So now let's go into what caused such a fuss and how we can unpick its contents. So the version of The Captive that we read, uh, as I mentioned earlier, contained an introduction written by J. Brooks Atkinson in 1926. Uh, He was then the drama critic for the New York Times Book Review. Um, He was an influential critic who would later have a theatre named after him and was specifically known for his openness to experimental forms of theatre. His introduction basically says this is not tawdry, scandalous content, it's a legitimate serious drama that just so happens to feature lesbians. Mm -hmm. He makes a note that the writer does not excuse his characters on the score of congenital weakness or worldly disillusionment or pseudo-scientific bunkum. Which I mostly include because the word bunkum is very funny. (laughs) I've never heard the word bunkum before, but I love it. He says, all these characters involved in various ways have been withered a little by their proximity to the festered one, <laughs> Madame de Guine. <laughs> that was a part of the play that, you know, was pretty pretty grim, but made me laugh when de Guine, the husband of Madame de Guine, is warning Jacques away from Irene. He's like, it will age you prematurely to marry a lesbian. That's why, because that's a bit earlier on, where someone's like, oh, de Guine's way older than you, Jacques. And then Jacques's like, no, we went to school together. And he's like, this is why I look old. Yep. <laughs> 
So, you know, his interpretation of the text, at least, is that what Bourdais is portraying is the corruptive influence of the older lesbian. Let's see how that holds up as we get into our discussion. <laughs> but according to Atkinson, the origin of the play is as follows. This is Monsieur Bourdais' first notable play. He is still in his 30s. His first play was Le Rubicon, put on at the Theatre Michel in 1910. Uh, during the war, Bourdais abandoned his career as a playwright to fight in the infantry. He was wounded twice, cited three times for bravery, and given the cross of the Legion of Honour. In the trenches, he met as a fellow officer a young man who was deliberately seeking death in battle as an escape from the wretchedness of his home life. The man corresponds to the Deguine of the captive and was the germ of the present play. Jesus. Wow. Now, that sounds more than a little apocryphal to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I haven't been able to, like, really corroborate that. I'd have to, you know, learn I mean, a lot of French and read it and see if there's a lot more better sources on Bourdais. Yeah. But also, um, like, how could you even corroborate that? He's just like, I met a man when I was at the war. Mm, he I, said this. Well, I, I guess at least if I could find Bourdais saying that, as opposed yeah. to Atkinson saying that Bourdais said that. Yeah. yeah. You know, that would be at least closer to, like, even if it's not true it would at least be that's what Bourdais said about it. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know if that's true. I've seen some sources claim that the man specifically had a lesbian wife. Obviously that makes sense with how the Deguines are depicted, but I can't confirm that specific detail. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not, like, written down anywhere in a source from the time. Yeah. So anyway, let's go through the play. Uh, In Act 1... The audience is introduced to Irene, whose father wants her to move from Paris to Rome with him. When she refuses, he is enraged and suspects that she has been having an affair with a man. Irene is forced to give him the name of Jacques Beru, who had asked to marry her a year ago. Uh, Since he is still in love with her, Jacques reluctantly agrees to pretend to be her fiancé. So I've got a few notes here, and then you guys can Mm -hmm. feel free to jump in with your own uh, notes on the first act. A conversation between uh, Irene's younger sister, Giselle, and uh, their governess gives us some exposition about Irene being reluctant to marry, artsy, you know, maybe a bit queer. (laughs) Um, She says, uh, the the governess says, perhaps your father's beginning to notice that Irene leads a rather odd life for a young unmarried girl. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Do you also spend hours each day in your studio painting? Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) It's noted that Irene enters the stage wearing violets. So the main feature, I think, of the first act is the confrontation between Irene and her father. Yeah. Um, we sort of build up to that and then it kind of bubbles over. I actually quite like the writing of that confrontation. Um, <laughs> you know, like, at least from my modern interpretation, it, it very much feels like they've both kind of failed each other in the other person's eyes. Mm, yeah. And, and, like, you can see the father trying to reach his daughter emotionally or principally, but not having been present enough in her life to earn that level of connection and trust with her. Yeah, I think it is a well-written relationship. Mm. I think it's honestly a well-written play. I think it is. I think we can probably talk about this later when we talk about whether the play is, you know, put on today. I think that it's very much a product of its time, Mm. but for a product of its time, it's very well written. Mm. Like, every character we encounter in the play is kind of sympathetic and convincingly written. You just have to see through the... You kind of have to see through the writer's weird lesbophobic lens a little. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. obviously, it is a homophobic play. The whole play is homophobic. Yeah. But there's no time when you're looking at a character in the play and you're like, like, even Jacques' worst actions, you're like, I completely understand what you're doing right now. Mm, mm. And also in the way it depicts, like, lesbians, obviously we never see Madame Teguine. She's just kind yeah. of present in the story. But, like, Irene isn't a stereotype of lesbianism or, like, demonized lesbian. Like, you are meant to feel for her. Yeah. 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 To go back into Act 1, I feel like, like, at this stage in the play, the lesbianism is very much all kind of implicit and in illusions. It's mm. Irene coming in with the violets. It's that, like, you're clear that she's living an uncommon life for a young unmarried woman. But the kind of crux of the act is not that at all. It's her being like, look, I'm 25. Mm. I should be able to live independently if I want to. I'm a grown-up adult person. It's 1926. You don't own me, father. Yeah. Um, And I can very much see why the lesbianism would be trivial to an audience of women. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, she's a lesbian, whatever, but this is a very, like, real and sort of universal women's experience. Mm. Mm. 
that, like you said, is very clearly drawn. It's sympathetic to the father and to the daughter. And I think that sort of, like, relationship of I love my father but he's stifling me Mm. would have just, like, universally resonated with women, frankly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, like, something that I took out of this first act is that, you know, you get the implication that, or not even really implication, you get it kind of basically outright stated that a Monsieur de Montcel has some kind of relationship with a woman named Mm. Madame de Vallon, which he's carried on in Brussels and possibly other diplomatic postings. And it seems like this is an inappropriate relationship. You know, it's kind of looked down upon and this is why the, you know, sort of diplomatic corps wants Monsieur to have his daughters with him when he goes to Rome. This lends Irene's assertion that she and her father are alike in temperament uh, considerable credence, mm, right? And mm. which is what makes me like. Th- there's little things like this where I'm like, but what is the author trying to say here? And you know, there's there's quotes like Irene talking to Jacques and saying, "If you were really my friend, you'd let yourself be guided by your heart instead of by the rules of middle class morality." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that did stick out to me. That specific phrase. And you know, you, like you then have obviously like Jacques' point of view where he says, yes, because if you had belonged to me, you'd have ended by loving me and marrying me. I'd have overcome your unwillingness to give up your liberty. It would have been a step towards the only solution of any girl's life, marriage. So obviously that's like a sexist point of view. Mm. It's unclear to me that Jacques and uh, Monsieur de Montcel are considered correct by the author. I'm not entirely convinced by that. I would argue that they're, like, Jacques especially is actively not considered, like, correct by the author. Because Jacques is here saying, well, you could have married me. It would have been a step towards you becoming a normal heterosexual woman, essentially. Mm. And then we get to Act 3, which is, like, a year later, they're married. And Yelene has done her, like, absolute best to embrace this heterosexual wife role and cannot do it because she's a lesbian. Um, Mm. So I think the author has said fairly clearly that there's no path here. Mm-hmm. I guess the question that remains is because, like, the author obviously sees lesbianism as causing a lot of misery and depicts it quite negatively. Mm-hmm. What does the author, what does Bourdais think a woman in Irene's situation should do? I think it's worth noting, and this is sort of what I thought when I was reading it, that when... What's his name? Monsieur Daguin is talking to Jacques Mm. about his wife and about Irene and about the whole situation. He very much presents this like it comes across that Irene is unhappy because she's in a bad relationship with this married woman, Mm. not because she's in a relationship with a woman. Like he's talking about it and he says, oh, it's because she's of strong personality and Irene is weak. I've been in this situation too. True. Yeah. I have some things to say about Mm. that because I don't think that he's a reliable narrator. (laughs) Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, But I think that like... He is very much drawing this as like, I love this woman. Irene also loves this woman. These are the same thing to him. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, but, but yeah. I think he's wrong, and I think the play presents him as wrong. Okay, because I think he, I think he makes he says some things that are just obviously false. We'll get into that in a sec. There's just one more thing I wanted to say about Act One. Um, is to build on Irene's point. Uh, Irene, the co-host of this podcast. <laughs> it turns out that we actually do have to do the correct pronunciation <laughs> then, so that we're not confused. Um, about uh. The fact that, yeah, the lesbianism is subtextual in Act 1. Um, mm. The last sort of subtextual allusion in Act 1 is the one smile that uh, Irene makes when Jacques uh, angrily tells her to go to him, i.e. the supposed and non-existent man that uh, Jacques thinks that she is in love with. Mm. Something I was wondering, like reading Act 1, is at what point, and obviously this would depend on members of the audience, but at what point does the audience realise they're in a play about lesbianism? At, like, at what point would they twig if they went in with no knowledge of the play like the first night audience how when would they know yeah that's a good question because like for some of them it might just be the violets and they might be like oh she's coming with the violets she's seeing someone but we don't know who it's a woman but for some of them they might get all the way through act one and just be like oh so this is a play about a secret relationship and a like fake engagement okay yeah what's going on here yeah so i i think it probably is realistically if you have no context about lesbianism Mm. or you know lesbian symbolism i think it's probably an act two i think it's probably when jacques finds out is when you find out as an audience yeah Mm. so to get into act two before i get into the summary of it i think because the summary doesn't include something that i think is very important which is that jacques has a mistress Uh, Mm -hmm. fuck 
Francoise Mion, who he has treated as if they are in a purely sexual relationship, uh, but she's fallen in love with him. And being in love with Irene, he rejects her. And I think that's really important because we've already established that Irene's father is in an inappropriate relationship. Mm. Mm. We've now established that Jacques is also in an inappropriate relationship where he is specifically treating the woman quite poorly. And we see this throughout the play. And I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that Irene even brings that up when Jacques is condemning her lesbianism. Like, I think it's in that conversation about middle class morality that she kind of says, well, what about you? Isn't this a bit hypocritical? Uh, it would not be in that conversation because that conversation is in Act 1. Oh, okay, maybe it's later on. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it would be later on. But yeah, so I think, you know, as presented in the play, both the father and Jacques are hypocritical in their judgment of Irene, mm. which again makes me wonder what the playwright is trying to say here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the second act, uh, Madame de Guin's husband informs Jacques, who's an old school friend of his. As Alice has already pointed out, Monsieur de Guin is prematurely aged. Uh, Giselle thought he looked much older than Jacques, and so there was some confusion about whether or not they were actually school chums. Monsieur de Guin informs Jacques of the true reason Irene wants to stay in Paris. Jacques is upset, but considers Irene's infatuation with Madame de Guin less significant than an affair with a man. Although Irene is fascinated with Madame de Guin, she does not succumb immediately to her allure, and even with Jacques to save her from lesbianism by marrying her. Although Irene recoils from his ardent embrace, Jacques nonetheless agrees to marry her. That scene was awful. Like, I don't mean it was, like, badly written or anything. Just this scene where she's like, I don't want to be a lesbian. Basically, I think she's asking him to sleep with her, to turn her straight. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, I love you, but I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a part of this. Like, the whole thing is yeah. just so miserable for both of them. Yeah. 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 And especially, I think, for him, she's like, I'm here. I'm going to be your perfect wife. Please save me. And he's like, I can't live with that because I love you. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, so to rewind slightly, let's uh, talk about the conversation between Jacques and Monsieur de Guin, because this <laughs> is where we get the most context as to what is actually happening with Madame de Guin and Irene. Mm. Yeah. It's not much, but we get a little bit. De Guin disagrees with Jacques' take, which is that, you know, well, this isn't that big of a deal, you know, whatever. Like, women being in relationships, that's, you know, <laughs> we can <laughs> yeah. sort that out. Yeah. Um, and he says... A woman can free herself from a lover, even if he's the worst scoundrel living. She can get over it. Whereas in her case, Jacques, in her case, what? Finish. <laughs> Dagin, hers is quite another kind of bondage, dot, 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 dot. And that kind. <laughs> and he then gives a speech about marrying a phantom, a shadow, which is to say a lesbian. He warns Jacques away from entering into such an arrangement with Irene based on bitter personal experience. This, he says, is what has aged him prematurely. And, like, that's kind of his take, but I think, like, layered into that, there's an acknowledgement within his spiel. I think he even, like, in character says this, that it is because of the difficult position unmarried women find themselves in that this kind of unhappy marriage with lesbians occurs. Yeah, he does say that, yes. Like, it's an overall, it's an unhinged monologue about in insidious lesbians creeping into houses and infiltrating the lives of other women, and it speaks to a certain level of isolation that men expect of women in society, and that's been a topic of conversation several times in the play. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Monsieur de Moncel's expressed opinion is a woman should not be seen without her family, and until she is married, family is her father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, there's like a clear link between those things mm. and the idea that, oh, well, it's tough for women who don't have like an income to support themselves mm. if they're not attached to a man. Yeah. Um, so again, I'm kind of getting to this like, yeah. I, I kind of actually think he's making a point here. Yeah, I'm um, coming around. I didn't think this. When I first read this, I kind of interpreted it the way that, you know, Basil Rathbone interpreted it. Not that I think sexual homosexuality is a disease, but I interpret it as it was kind of saying that, you know, we should feel sorry for gay people because they're suffering from this really unfortunate situation where they're just abnormal. But... <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'm coming around to the idea that it's not just sympathetic because the playwright feels bad for them, but it's actually saying, you know, by trying to force gay people into this heteronormative world, that's what's causing this misery. That's how I felt about it. I didn't read it, and in spite of everything, I didn't read it and feel like I was reading a homophobic play. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't really put my finger on why not, if you know what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Even down to, like what Dagin is saying to Jacques here, where Jacques is like, oh, if she's in love with some scoundrel, it's fine. That'll pass. She'll get over it. 
And Dagina's like, you don't understand. This isn't about her being in love with a different man. This is about her being an entirely different type of person. Mm. It felt very modern. Mm. Like it was this sort of recognition of like a fixed lesbian identity. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is quite interesting. I want to now go on to talk a bit about specifically Madame Dagin. Mm-hmm. And how she is depicted, the only way we ever see her depicted, really, by Monsieur de Guin. We get a tiny little bit of reference to her from Irene herself. Yeah. But as depicted by her husband, Madame de Guin is alluring and domineering. Her husband mm. worships her and finds her impossible to resist or hate when in person. I mean, she sounds hot. She does sound <laughs> hot, it's true. Like, we need to address the elephant in the room. <laughs> is that she's, you know, a hot dom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, Irene too finds it impossible to resist Madame de Guin and wants so desperately to love Jacques so that her life can become easy once more. Monsieur de Guin thinks Irene will become like him, but I think that the relationship is clearly different because he acknowledges that Madame de Guin does not love him Mm. and that she did this for practical reasons. She got into a relationship with him for purely practical reasons. And it seems to me that the prison Irene thinks herself in is one of her mind's own making or of society's making, Mm, not necessarily one that's been constructed for her by Madame de Guin. Throughout the play, there's no specificity, really, to anything the Madame has done to her. Mm. And her lack of presence in the story, it makes her seem mythical, nigh-vampiric. I'm reminded of Carmilla, um, another Queerest Fiction episode, if you (laughs) want to go and listen to that. The OG Queerest Fiction episode, I think. Yeah, uh, pretty much, yeah. yeah. And it's simply that Irene is afraid of the taboo nature of their relationship and doesn't Mm. want her life to be difficult. She goes into a lot of like how difficult this is making her life and how she just wants her life to be simple. Mm. And she doesn't really go into it all whether or not Madame de Guin is manipulating her. Yeah, we we don't actually get any indication of how Madame de Guin is treating Irene or like what what is their relationship like? We know it exists, and the people who talk about it, especially Deguin himself, depict Madame Deguin as being kind of quite predatory mm. towards Irene, but we don't know that's true, and he's, as you said, obviously a very unreliable narrator about mm. that. Like, literally the only action that we know that Madame Deguin takes in the play is that she seeks Irene out in the final act when Irene goes to buy the painting, mm-hmm. she sees Madame de Guin there and is like, well, she knew I was going to be there and she sought me out. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the only action that we know she takes. And she buys her flowers. That's the only She buys thing. her flowers. And it's like Monsieur de Guin would see that as a predatory act. Hmm. But it's just as easy to read that as, you know, her trying to win her ex back in a normal way. Yeah. Yeah. And and also, yeah. you know, like she's clearly desperate to see her. So there's this whole thing. Yeah. Um, and this kind of brings us into the third act of whether or not Madame de Guin is unwell. Um, mm-hmm. Because that is the claim that she at least makes. And, you know, Jacques thinks she is lying, but of course Jacques would think that she is lying. And, you know, it seems that she, like, leaves her husband to come and see Irene yeah. at this gallery where Irene is going to pick up the painting, painting yeah. right? And that speaks to me more of someone who is desperately in love with this young woman, more to me than someone who is trying to manipulate her, because she's gone above and beyond. Yeah. Like, she's jeopardized her position in society to do this. Mm, Yeah. You know, she wouldn't need to do that if she was a purely predatory being who didn't actually feel love and affection for Irene. Yeah. You know, she Mm. could just find a new target. Yeah. Because that's how Monsieur Deguin presents Mm. her, is as someone who, you know, has targeted him and is now targeting Irene. That would imply that, you know, she doesn't really have any real care for these people. Yeah. Mm. But her actions don't really imply that. So, yeah. Act three, as we've kind of alluded to a couple of times, uh, takes place a year after Irene's marriage to Jacques. She assures Jacques that she has not seen Madame de Guin, despite the older woman's attempts to get in touch with her, but he doubts her. The marriage is not happy. Jacques accuses Irene of being sexually cold and of simply not caring that his former mistress is going to stop by to see him later that day. Irene casts aside his aspersions as ridiculous. Later that day, however, she appears looking distraught. She admits to having seen Madame de Guin, who was lying in wait for her, and asks Jacques to leave Paris with her. To be clear, these are plot summaries that 
clearly have a bit of a bias in terms of their perspective, are not written by me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's references to Irene having been a statue for the year of their marriage. But after Madame de Guin tracks her to the gallery, she comes alive with trembling want. And while she wants to resist, Jacques no longer wants to help her. And yeah, this is also where we find out that the Madame claims she is sick, but that she wants Irene and would rather die than be parted from her for treatment in Switzerland. And like Jacques interprets this as lies, but is it? Like, do we have any reason to trust Jacques here? Jacques doesn't know. No, Jacques never <laughs> met this woman. Yeah. So yeah, Jacques refuses to have anything more to do with her kind. The play concludes with Irene leaving to go to Madame de Guin, while Jacques leaves to renew his old relationship with his ex-mistress, Francoise. What I thought was interesting is uh, one of the plot summaries I read just like fully didn't interpret the ending as that and interpreted the ending as Irene like breaking off her relationship with Madame de Guin. And oh. I, that, that doesn't seem right at all to me. I don't see how you could interpret it like that, but maybe there were different endings. I don't know. Maybe the French is different. But yeah, that seems like, you know, that could happen. Like she leaves the house and we obviously never see her again because the play is over. So, you know, if you really wanted to write some captive fan fiction, you could have her go to Madame de Guin and be like, this has ruined my life. I never want to see you again. Mm. But there's no implication that that that's what she's going to do. No. Yeah. And given that the play has sort of said so strongly that Ilan's attraction to women is the nature of her, breaking it off with Madame de Guin is not going to save her. Yeah, like I like, think it's... It it's doesn't a- make sense that that would be what she's going to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's apparent that Irene is interested in women and interested in being independent from men beyond her relationship with Madame de Guin. Yeah, like, even if you were to interpret Madame de Guin specifically as this manipulative older woman preying on an innocent young lesbian, it's still an innocent young lesbian. Yeah. <laughs> the key yeah. word there is lesbian. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no way, like, the play is quite strong about that, that Irene has done her best and will not change. Yeah, mm. yeah. So yeah, I think it's interesting that the American interpretation of this play seems to be that the tragedy is one of Irene being ruined by her hysteric infatuation with the unseen and sinister Madame de Guin. Mm. Um, as I've kind of, I feel, made clear throughout, I think that this story is a story of restrictive social roles mm-hmm. for women and how hypocritical men are to impose upon such women in these ways. You know, both Irene's father and Jacques engage in affairs outside of marriage so long as it conveniences them. Mm. And notably, it is Jacques who cannot maintain his loveless marriage with Irene. Irene herself has tried incredibly hard to turn herself into a good, dutiful wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the ending supports this interpretation. The heterosexual coupling of Jacques and Francoise does not seem like a genuine love or one that is especially likely to prove successful. Mm. Like, if a play was aiming to make a negative judgment of homosexuality, you would expect that that would be Mm. kind of true love, right? Yeah, like the straight man (laughs) is meant to with the straight woman and they'll be happy together and the lesbian will stop ruining their lives. You would kind of expect that to be the ending. Yeah, but instead you get this thing where Jacques is like, I don't care that I don't love Francoise anymore. I would just like to be with someone who loves me. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, this is where I kind of come back to the predominantly female Mm. audience. It strikes me as unlikely that women in any era would have found the character of Monsieur de Guin in particular as being especially sympathetic. Mm. And it is from him that our primary judgment of Madame de Guin comes. You know, there are reports of women in Paris wearing violets in solidarity with homosexuality, so clearly at least some of the audience found an interpretation of the story that was less homophobic. Mm. Yeah. I think it was very easy for me to see. Like, Jacques is a sympathetic character in this Mm. play. You can see where he's at the whole time and his feelings make sense. And it's very easy for me to see that... Monsieur de Guin is in a very similar position. He's like, Jacques, don't go where I went. I married a lesbian because I'm in love with her even though she can't love me back and it sucks. Yeah. When I read his description of Madame de Guin, it didn't quite seem negative to me. Well, I think he (laughs) he specifically says, like, I want to stop loving her, but I can't. Like, when I'm with her, I still love her. Like, he's not, he doesn't hate well, no, he does hate her, but at the same time, he is still in love with her. So it does have some positivity yeah. when he talks about her, even though he's so, like, misogynistic and lesbophobic about it at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of that is, you know, that kind of general, like, misogynistic depiction of women as being, like, temptresses who, like, yeah. you know, are uncontrollable or, like, you know, they need to be reined in and yada, 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 you know, 
misogynistic rhetoric. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder whether, because there are a couple of times in the play where somebody says something about like a woman, a true woman to like distinguish them from a lesbian. Yeah. Mm. Um, who is not a true woman because she has this masculine characteristic. Mm. And that given that context, the like his repeated allusions to like the strength of Madame de Guine's personality, mm. like she's, he sort mm. of speaks about him being the weaker personality because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's the way he describes what he thinks yeah. is happening between her and Yvonne. Yeah. And then he's like, that happened to me too. Do you think that's representing a flaw in, I mean, when I say flaw, I mean obviously a flaw in the eyes of the people of the 1920s, mm. a flaw in Monsieur de Guine that he is a weak man? Or do you think that's representing a flaw in the relationship that the balance where a man is stronger and a woman is weaker has been disrupted by the masculinity of a lesbian? Yeah, I think that that's what it was trying to show, that a lesbian's character is too masculine to marry a man, if yeah. you know what I mean. Because the man won't be the dominant one in the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I find it really interesting that you've latched onto this idea of the kind of uh, gendered presentation of lesbians in this mm. play. Sherry A. Innes, uh, wrote, who wrote an article comparing the captive with the runner-up in our Patreon poll, The Well of Loneliness, posited that mainstream audiences may have found Madame de Guine and Irene more threatening than The Well of Loneliness's mannish lesbian, Stephen Gordon, and you know that kind of explains some of the backlash because, mm. as she says, on the other hand, the lesbian that the captive portrayed was not so familiar to the American heterosexual audience. Attractive, feminine, and seductive, Mm. she contrasts sharply with handsome, boyish Stephen Gordon and is less easily separated from heterosexual society. Mm. The play dismantles the idea of the lesbian as the easily recognisable other, i.e. the mannish lesbian, and instead portrays a lesbian prototype that I would suggest was much more threatening to society than the masculinized Stephen Gordon. This new lesbian is a heterosexually desirable woman who can drain a man financially, emotionally, and physically, yet maintain her lesbianism even when given the option of joining heterosexual society through marriage. She is a trickster figure, an individual who slyly pretends to be what she is not, a member of the heterosexual community. So that fits in really well with then-modern psychological explanations of homosexuality, the concepts of inversion, the idea that gay men had women's souls. While it was masculinity and women that led to their homosexuality you know this increasing fascination with lesbianism in the 1920s spurred on in particular by the popular consumption of mass market versions of freud's work i think both those things exist at once like the point that irene was making about madame daguin being quite masculine and the point that's being made here about irene and madame daguin being threatening because they are quote unquote normal women Mm. it's the idea that you know this woman seems like a normal woman but once she's in a relationship with a man, it's going to be all wrong because she's not a real woman. She's too masculine. Mm. Like what you said about, I guess, the trickster figure. Like, it's she's not what she seems. Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, I, and I think that also gets into, you know, sort of the difference between audience interpretations versus authorial intent. You know, and obviously we don't necessarily have a full perspective on either of those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's interesting with that context as well that what we see of the way that Irene and Jacques behave in their marriage is like the first things we see in act three she's like Jacques you have to come in here you have to approve the curtains that I've chosen Jacques do you like this painting Jacques I'm submissive to you Mm, and Jacques is really frustrated because he's known her for like 15 years Mm. and he's like this isn't this isn't right yeah this isn't what I wanted yeah (laughs) this isn't the like this isn't the woman that I'm in love with Mm. Mm. But the woman that he's in love with is Is not not a true woman, as it were. And even what he's in love with is not traditional femininity. No, Mm -hmm. exactly, Mm -hmm. exactly. Which I guess kind of matches what Deguin himself says about him being like the weak one, the one who's being dominated in his relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, I mean, I guess you're right. Like, that's Jacques' frustration. Yeah. He's like, I've been wanting you to dom me for 15 years. <laughs> and now here we are. Now here we are. You. you won't do it. I knew we'd get here eventually. Um, <laughs> Dear listener, I've been waiting for this the whole time. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that is something that's happening there. It's like the relationship's off because she's not behaving in the way that she really is as a person. And it's also not, like, the relationship that he wanted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, that's the thing. Like, the Yelene that he is in love with is her 
before she was pretending to be anything. Yeah, yeah. All of that said, I don't actually necessarily agree. Like, I kind of agree with uh, Innes's analysis. I don't necessarily agree with, like, the logical conclusion from that of, like, this is why The Well of Loneliness was able to continue to be a popular text Mm. throughout the 20th century, whereas The Captive, like, you know, sort of fell into obscurity. I mean, obviously it fell into obscurity because it was straight up banned and all the performers were arrested. Yes, (laughs) but but obviously there are many gay texts for which this was true, and many of them came made comebacks in the latter half of the 20th century. The Captive has not. You know, I was only really able to find, like, two modern productions of it, like, Mm. neither of which were at all mainstream. They were both incredibly gay, which I'm like, hell yeah. There like aren't that many was, characters in it. We should put it on. One of them was all women and non-binary people, for instance. Oh, yeah. I'm so but, intrigued by what that was trying to say. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, but yeah, so all of that said, I would tend to go for a simpler explanation as to the lack of cultural influence the captive has had by comparison to things like The Well of Loneliness. I'm going to end on a quote from a review of a 2022 production of the play. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, no amount of acting talent, production value, or even swanky costumes can disguise the fact that this is a very very boring play. (laughs) It's over two hours long and consists solely of back-to-back scenes in which two characters who are slightly annoyed at each other pace around the stage exchanging repetitive passive-aggressive dialogue until a butler enters to announce the arrival of another character whereupon one of the present characters will leave and the next will enter and the whole awful cycle will begin. It's true. (laughs) They're not wrong. But in reading the play I found it quite engaging and compelling. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just, I yeah, I genuinely was like, I had a good time reading that, and then I read that, and I was like, yeah, that would be terrible to watch. Yeah, yeah. Because obviously, you're reading it, you can read it at your own pace. Yeah, it's a quick read. It did not take me two hours to read it. I don't think, but yeah, no. I think it would be tedious to see in theatre. Yeah, I just there's no variety. Yeah, right. Yeah, which is okay when it's like you're reading it. It takes you a couple of hours, but like when you're sitting in a theater and you can't like look at your phone, and stuff, <laughs> like you know, it's just a very different thing in a theater. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, whilst the play certainly has a fascinating history and was a fairly breezy read, I'd recommend it to our listeners. I'm not sure that I'd be especially keen to see it performed live unless it was reworked in some way. Maybe let's bring Madame de Guine in in some <laughs> form. I don't know. So yeah, with that, we've been Queer as Fiction. I'm Jason. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you can check out Queer as Fact on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever good podcasts are found. You can also find us on social media. We are on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook as Queer as Fact. If you'd like to support this podcast financially, we have a Redbubble store where you can purchase merchandise such as Queer as Fact shirts and mugs, and a Patreon where you can enjoy perks such as voting on episode topics and access to our monthly newsletter. This was a Patreon episode, so thank you to our patrons for just barely choosing this over the World of Loneliness. <laughs> uh, I think the margin was one vote, so if you would have rather seen that, subscribe to our Patreon so you can be the difference. We do need to do well of Loneliness one day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There have been some recycling of Patreon topics before, so True. there will be again. <laughs> There's precedent. All of this information can be found on our website, QueerAsFact.com, alongside source posts if you'd like to read more about our episode topics. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.